Episode 1, we gave you the background facts about the speed freak killers, Wesley Shermantine and Lauren Herzog, and what it was like to grow up in the area of Linden, California in the 1980s. In episodes 2 and 3, we talked to you about the speed freak killers' last known victims and interviewed family members to help you get to know their relatives and understand the events leading up to them going missing. Our last known victim was Chevy Wheeler, who went missing on the 16th of October 1985. When Chevy went missing, Shermantine was the main suspect. However, despite finding a small amount of blood and hair that were similar to Chevy's in his family cabin, they were unable to follow this up and arrest him. At the time, there was no DNA testing and therefore no conclusive evidence. In episode three, we also included statements from assault victims of the pair, with details of Shermantine being arrested for the rape of Lisa Bassano and then being acquitted in early 1998. In this episode, we will be talking about Cindy Vanderheiden. Cindy was the last known victim of the Speed Freak Killers, as they were both arrested shortly after her disappearance. Cindy Vanderheiden was born on November 4th, 1973. She grew up with an older sister, Kim, and her parents, John and Terry, in the small town of Clements. Nicknamed Tigger by her friends and family, Cindy was energetic and full of life. She was an animal lover and adored her fluffy white cat that she fondly named Topaz. After going through an unsettled time in her life, Cindy had recently purchased a new car and was living at home to help her save money and to be able to afford the repayments. Cindy's sister, Kim, and her father tell us what Cindy was like. Comical, fun. She followed me everywhere I went. It was kind of hilarious. She was a young, ambitious girl, always bubbly, always fun, always having a good time, always laughing. We were very close. I mean, we had a lot of the same friends in high school and middle school. We knew everybody, but we were pretty darn close. I mean, she did anything that I did, and she copied everything that I did. Cindy's father was a respected businessman who ran a number of bars in the local area while she was growing up. And her and her sister, Kim, used to bartend in them sometimes. For her 25th birthday... In November 1998, her family threw her a surprise birthday party at the Linden Inn, one of the bars that was owned by her father. It was a fun family gathering, and they spent the evening singing along to their favorite songs on the karaoke. I can't even read those words. (laughs) A few days later, on November 14th, 1998, 
Cindy Vanderheiden met her mother for lunch and then did a little shopping. She wanted her parents to join her for karaoke again that evening as she enjoyed herself so much the previous week. Baby, I'm just too tired. But they said they were too tired. No problem. No problem, said Cindy, and she found a friend to go with her instead. Cindy and her friend Kurt started the evening at another bar that her father owned in Clements. They moved to the Linden Inn in Linden, leaving Cindy's car at the first venue. While at the Linden Inn, Cindy ran into Herzog and Shermantine. Herzog was a regular at the bar. He helped out with odd jobs every now and then, like changing a barrel. And he actually had dated her sister, Kim, for a couple months. She didn't know much about Shermantine, though his reputation preceded him. Everyone in the area knew Shermantine by reputation, especially after the recent rape claims against him. However, she wasn't worried about him, as he was best friends with Herzog, who had always been protective of her and her sister Kim. Around 2 a.m., Cindy and Kurt left the Linden Inn and headed back to Clements to pick up Cindy's car. Her friend followed her home, and as Cindy turned into her driveway, Kurt drove away. Cindy's mother, Terry, checked in on her daughter in the morning and was pleasantly surprised to find her bed neatly made. Assuming she had already left for work, she carried on with her morning. Her father, John, had also missed her that morning, so later in the day he called her at work just to make sure she was okay. He was surprised to hear that she had not turned up that day and began driving around the area looking for her. Clements was a very small town with around 250 people, just 12 miles from London. After a frantic search, John came across Cindy's car in the car park of Glenview Cemetery. Her purse and cell phone were in the vehicle, but there was no sign of Cindy. The car hadn't gone far. The cemetery was just a couple miles away from the Vanderheiden's home. John knew at that moment that something was very wrong and immediately called the police. Law enforcement were still investigating Chevy Wheeler's disappearance from 14 years before, where Sherman Time was one of the last people to see her alive. And now he was one of the last to see Cindy too. John tells us about the events leading up to Cindy's disappearance. I had quite a bit of work to do. I also owned the bar and then I had construction company coming up. And my wife worked over at the Old Corner Saloon, which is a bar here in Clements. We stopped over there to have a, a cocktail and us. And then Cindy wanted to go do karaoke, which we did quite often. Her and I and, and Kim, we always had to go over there and sing and, and well, try to sing. But anyway, she wanted to go over there and do it. And I, uh, I was too tired and I didn't want to go that way. Neither did uh, Terry, my wife. So a friend of ours took her over there to do karaoke. And that's uh, the last time I seen her. At the time of her disappearance, Cindy was five foot six inches tall with dark brown hair and green eyes, weighing about 135 pounds. She was wearing a Tigger watch. The day after Cindy went missing, more than 50 people turned up to help the family search for her. The searches took place for weeks, with numbers exceeding a 1,000 people on some days. 
They searched rivers, hillsides, ravines and orchards, leaving no stone unturned. Cindy's sister Kim came back to her parents' home from Wyoming to help with the searches and to man the search centre, which was relocated next to the Vanderheiden's property. Her family were determined to find her, and due to their persistence, the story reached the national news. Kim tells us about getting the call from her parents to say that her sister was missing and then coming back to help with the searches. I lived in Wyoming at the time, so we just basically talked on the phone a lot. I had talked to her 10 days prior to her disappearing to wish her a happy birthday. Past that, basically it was just a lot of phone calls. I'd come out to visit every once in a while and past that, that's just how it went. Once that they told me that she had been at the Linden Inn, I was adamant that Lauren and Wes were the ones that were involved in this after dealing with both of them in the past having them in the bar, having them hang out at the house. I mean, just knowing their background. At first, I didn't want to think that it could be possible, but once they told me the two people that she had been seen at the bar with, I knew that it was them that were involved right away. John tells us about the extensive searches that the family carried out, about him realising Sherman Tyne and Herzog were the likely culprits, and about them getting arrested. We had uh, hundreds of people around the community, and we had all kinds of searches. We set up a command center for the search center over in the Odd Fellows Hall here in Clements, and we worked out of there 24 hours a day, manned the phones, and we had flyers, everything. We investigated every tip or everything that was said to us that we did. We went out to caves. And we even had one that said that she had been drugged and took down to Mexico, down by Guadalajara. So I had a Mexican friend, and he went down all the way out there and went to do see what they said and everything. And sure enough, there was a blonde woman there, a young woman, and she was drugged up, but it wasn't Cindy. So anyway, that ended that. I had talked to Kurt, the guy that had taken her over there, and said he had been talking to her. And so I wanted to know what, you know, what they, what they had done, you know, if they had seen her and uh, of course they wouldn't talk to me. So I went over to their house and of course they still wouldn't come out of their house. And so I left and uh, that I told that to the sheriffs and they went out and interviewed them, I guess. I don't know. Well, as the time went on, I, I realized that they were the last ones to see her, and I wanted to know. And so I went over to their house several times, and, and they would never come out. And then I finally got to the point that I was going to go over there and take them out one at a time, and they were either going to tell me or they were going to get buried. And when I got there, I guess I told too many people, because when I got to Herzog's house first, the sheriffs are already there arresting him and taking him to jail, which I knew that that was it. And then I saw, I went over to get Sherman time the next day, the next afternoon. And lo and behold, they were arresting him. And I followed him all the way to the sheriff's office. I didn't, I made sure that that's where they were going. 
Cindy was the final known victim of the Speed Freak killers. Her remains were found almost 13 years after her disappearance, after Shermantine marked her location on one of his maps. In the next episode, we will be delving into the pair getting arrested and the interviews before starting on the trials. We had one final question for John. John, when we came out to visit you at your house, we noticed that the outside light was on. You said that you left it on for Cindy. Can you tell us more about that? When she left, we always left the light on. And uh, when she went missing, the light stayed on. The light had been on for uh, 12, 14 some years, and it's still on. And I guess that's just uh, in case anybody else is lost, they can find their way home. Find their way. Foul Play is brought to you by Sunbasket. You have heard me say it many times, I hate grocery shopping. When I was young, my mom would turn a quick trip to the grocery into an all-day event, so I still hate it. Don't get me started on dealing with people either. If you're like me and you want a quick, easy, and delicious solution, then listen up. Sunbasket is our answer. Sunbasket delivers healthy, delicious meals straight to your door. The recipes you select can be based on your needs. Someone in my household has a soy allergy, so I simply filter for soy-free meal options. They make it easy and convenient with everything pre-proportioned and ready to prep and cook. My favorite part is that the ingredients are clean and the produce is organic. My sun basket this week was delivered Wednesday right to my door. I had hoisin steak strip lettuce cups with pickled daikon and carrots, and one of my new favorite meals, black bean tostados Diablo with cabbage, slaw, and guacamole. I used to not be a fan of guacamole, but I've learned that fresh guacamole is amazing. You can order from any recipes across their menu. Skip a week whenever you need, or you can even double up on recipes. Right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go right now to sunbasket.com slash foulplay and enter promo code foulplay at checkout. That's sunbasket.com slash foulplay and enter promo code foulplay at checkout for $35 off your order. sunbasket.com slash foulplay and enter promo code foulplay. Foul Play is also brought to you by Best Fiends. Guys, seriously take out your phone right now and download the game Best Fiends. I've been playing for a while now and I love it. If you listen to true crime because you enjoy that feeling when you're able to dig into a story and uncover more layers, then you will also love Best Fiends. The more I play, the more fun it gets. My absolute favorite feature is that you can see what level your friends and family are on too. My mom has MS, so I haven't been able to be around her lately. So we get extra enjoyment out of playing Best Fiends together and competing on who is at a higher level. Mom, I just looked and I'm four levels higher than you. My brother has seen us play too, so he's joined us for some friendly competition. I welcome you to add me as a friend on Facebook so you can see what level I'm on, so you can also try to keep up. 
Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added each month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of 5-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Last but not least, Foul Play is also brought to you by BetterHelp. We all experience times when we could use some extra help. That's why BetterHelp's online counseling is there for us. If there's something interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp will connect you to a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. If you're worried about time, you can get help at your own time and at your own pace. One of my favorite features is that you can meet with your therapist over a secure video or a phone session. And you can chat and text with your therapist when you need to. They have licensed counselors who specialize in many fields, such as stress, anxiety, depression, trauma, grief, and self-esteem. Anything you share is confidential. The service is available worldwide, and they have 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across 50 states who can communicate over text, chat, phone, and video. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Foul Play listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code OUT. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com OUT. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com OUT. As we have mentioned previously, there are a large number of missing people that are believed to be victims of the Speed Freak Killers. These are cases that we need help with, so if you have any tips that might help to solve them, please do get in touch via our website. The first case we would like to introduce to you is that of Philip Lloyd Martin. Philip Martin went missing on September 30th, 1993. He was 47 at the time of his disappearance. He had brown hair and brown eyes, was 5 foot 11 inches tall, and weighed about 165 pounds. Philip was a construction laborer and carpenter at the time of his disappearance. He was living in his car. We will post photographs of Philip and his car on our Facebook page. On September 30th, 1993, Philip failed to collect his daughters from school and has never been seen again. His gold 1987 Chevrolet Celebrity was found burnt out up a dirt track by a river a few days after he was last seen. The area was a well-known spot to dump vehicles at this time. We spoke to Philip's daughter, Marie, about her father. As a kid, though, my dad, he lived in Lodi, Stockton, Lockford, traveled, you know, a little bit farther north. You know, my sisters and I were growing up in Modesto, three of us at the time. All the time, we were always out here, you know, going to the river, <laughs> camping, running amok, 
dragging my dad out of the bar in Lockford, <laughs> that kind of stuff. You know, that's just kind of how we grew up. And, and then he, he met Marilyn, my stepmom. She was my stepmom. She's passed. And they had two more girls. So that's where the five of us come in. There was three of us and then, and then two little ones. You know, but my dad was always a part of our lives. All of our lives. He was just there. <laughs> always. Even if we didn't want him there, he was there. <laughs> so, yeah, we'd go and visit his family. He's originally from Southern California, from Banning. He grew up in Banning. Right before I was born, he lived in Manhattan Beach. He's always been a carpenter, a framer. So what he did, framing, swinging a hammer. I used to go to work with him when he lived up here, you know, in the Lockford Lodi area. I'd spend every weekend and summers, anytime we weren't in school, and I'd schlep with him on the job site and hear that three hits and the nail was driven in <laughs> and skill saw the smell of wood. Every time I sharpen a pencil, I, it, I, it just takes me back. It reminds me of him. So, um, when I moved to Stockton, I, I met my future husband, now my ex-husband, um, but we, he lived in this area and worked in this area. And so I moved up here and, um, then we got married and we had a baby. My dad had his first boy in his family, five daughters, a granddaughter, and my older sister and I were pregnant at the same time. And I gave birth first, I beat her to the punch, had a boy. And my sister swears, daddy was floating three feet off the floor in the hospital. And he, he was at the hospital with me every day after my son was born. The day I came home from the hospital with my son, my dad was there on the porch waiting for us. And every day he was just there, 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 there. When Timothy, my, my son, was old enough, my dad went to, found it at a yard sale, a bicycle with a baby seat on the back. And he'd ride over to the house and pick up the baby and they'd go to the park and do whatever they did. And, I mean, he was just there in my life. Well, he kind of cut back on his drinking. He was, he'd been an alcoholic all of his life. I knew he smoked a little weed, you know, but I never paid much attention to it because that wasn't like a thing for him. You know, like a lot of people just smoking all day, every day. And, and I, I would see him do that periodically, but that's not to say he wasn't doing it when I wasn't looking. I just never saw that or noticed that about him. He did like to drink his beer though. Boy, did he like to drink his beer. Marie tells us more about the car being found. In the narrative, she mentions Stephen's Motel. Wendy and I visited this motel on our trip to California. It's a very basic, low-cost motel taking cash only, with a lot of long-term residents. In the 1990s, it was used a lot by construction workers, and it's believed that Herzog and Shermantine had spent time there, as well as Philip Barton. In fact, in one of the assault statements against Shermantine, the lady mentions that she was taken to Stevens Motel. One of Marie's sisters, who visited the motel with her father, was able to pick Shermantine and Herzog from a photo lineup as men who she had seen while she was there. Wherever he met, whoever did whatever they did to him, wherever he ran into Shermantine and Herzog and they drug him off to wherever they drug him off to and his car was left. And, you know, whether they had somebody go and say, hey, you know, we need you to get rid of this car for us or somebody just saw a car that's sitting there for a day or two and thinking, oh, I'll take it for a joyride. Marie's family needs answers. They need to know what happened to Philip. 
If you know anything, however small and insignificant you think it may be, please get in touch.